Open your Bibles, if you would, the Gospel according to John, chapter 16. Again, we do want to be careful to wish all of the mothers that are still in the room Happy Mother's Day. I know some have left. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit for the last several weeks. Uh, we've talked about the identity of the Holy Spirit, that He is God, period. Uh, he is person, personal. We say He to demonstrate His personhood, not His gender. He's not male. And that He is engaged with the people of God. We talked a couple weeks back, couple weeks back about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and made some observations that His ministry is described as being primarily external, coming on people from the outside. Um, it's occasional as the need arises, uh, as opposed to being internal or um, relational. Kind of a distinction there. Last week we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit early in the life of our Lord, uh, from the point of the conception of John the Baptist all the way up to the point that Jesus went into the synagogue in Jerusalem, was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and read that. So this morning we turn our attention to the teaching of our Lord about the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that would happen after His crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, and His ascension to the Father. So we're kind of moving progressively through the Scripture's description of how the Holy Spirit has ministered and would minister. So without any ado, let's go to John chapter 16, begin reading in the fifth verse. John records the words of our Lord. But now I am going to Him who sent you, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, Lord. It's such a, such a thing that we so easily overlook, and yet it is life and light to us. So we ask that you'd open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the portion of Scripture we're looking at this morning in John 16 is part of a larger block of teaching. Uh, that goes all the way back to John 14. Jesus has been talking about his departure and, and the ramifications of that. Uh, he's intimated before that he would be leaving, but now he's making it really, really clear. And he, and he acknowledges in that the impact that this news is having on his listeners. He says in verse 6, uh, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. What he's saying is it's a hard thing for you to hear, but... Um, it's a good thing. And so what I, what I want to do as we, as we attempt to understand this text is, is, first of all, try to get into their heart, their mind, understand how this sounded to them. Just kind of grasp 
the sorrow that he is speaking of, and then talk about what he actually was saying would happen, and then finally consider what, what it means to ourselves. So let's first of all talk about the disciples' perspective, their sorrow. You know, we all come to um, the Lord differently, don't we? We all have our own story, if you will, our own tale of how we went from being lost in darkness, coming into the light of Christ, and that was true of the original followers of Jesus as well. They all had different experiences. Uh, some came to Jesus out of conviction of their sin. They had hope for salvation from sin in him. Some came to him um, because of the oppression of the Romans and their confidences that he would be a deliverer uh, in some fashion. Some came looking for purpose or meaning. But when I think about those for whom this message that Jesus was leaving would fall the hardest on, uh, and, and John talks about this, I think about uh, those three women that John specifically uh, mentions. He mentions Mary Magdalene, he mentions Joanna, he mentions Susanna, three women who had been delivered of demonic spirits, pushing Mary Magdalene, delivered of seven. And to think about what their life had been like before they met Jesus. Quite literally, hell on earth. Utterly hopeless, utterly dark, to what their life was like following Jesus. Absolute life. Three people for whom everything they knew that was good and positive and hopeful and joyous was attached to this person's presence. And now he's saying, I'm leaving. Must have hit them like a bowling ball in the middle of the chest. What hope do they have? What expectation do they have other than things are going to go right back to the way they were? If this guy leaves, it would have been crushing. Right? So what could he possibly have to say to them in this moment? Well, what he says is, it's actually better for you that I leave. How in the world is he going to make any sense out of that? Well, let's pick it up at verse 7, because this is really the heart of the matter. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I'm going away for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he recognizes the reality of the situation, the feeling of being overwhelmed, and he says it's to your advantage that I leave. Uh, some translations say it's expedient. And it's literally a word that means in leaving, in my leaving, it will bring all things together. The word has the sense of collecting things together. Uh, another way to put it is uh, it will bring things full circle. And that's, that's a challenge even for us to accept because it means acknowledging, and it runs contrary to so much that we've been taught, that Jesus' ministry on earth isn't the whole plan. You know, we all, we're, we're so adamant that it's all about Jesus. Well, that's true. We're so adamant that the focus is on what Jesus did, and that's true. Jesus' ministry is the centerpiece of the plan, but it was never the whole plan. Because there would be something else that would bring us back to that, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find out how that works as we get farther into the text. But it's so essential that we get at the very, at the very outset that the presence and the ministry of the Spirit is not like an add-on. You know, like when you buy a new truck, and after you've decided you've picked the truck out, you know the truck you want, they start talking to you about, like, you know, the undercoating you want to add? 
right? That's an add-on, right? That's not like the essential truck. Well, the Holy Spirit's not an add-on. Part of the essential plan of God. And His presence, His coming, is every bit as critical to what will happen to us as even Jesus' birth, death, burial, and resurrection. It's all part of the same plan. That's so hard for us to accept, right? What does he say? It's expedient. It's to your benefit. And then he also says that the Holy Spirit's coming is completely dependent on his going. It's better for you that I leave. How could that possibly be any better? Better because my leaving is what predicates his coming. There's a relationship there. The Holy Spirit will not come on his own. He will be sent, and that being sent is dependent upon Jesus' ascension. So if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come. I will send to you another, and here the translations are broad and wide, I will send you a comforter, a helper, an advocate, a counselor. Wide variety in translations because the word has no direct parallel in English. There's no single word that expresses it. The word that Jesus uses, paracletos. You may know it as the paraclete. That's an Englishization of the word, paracletos. Well, what does it mean? Well, I could get a nice theological dictionary and define it for you, but I think I can do a better job than that because of the story. Now, some of you have heard this before. Some of you know this before. If it's a repetition for you, I apologize, but I know that many don't. We had been in Greece about nine months, right? Just getting our feet on the ground. And we had an automobile accident. One of three we would have. That's another story, right? When we had our automobile accident, I was arrested, right? I was arrested for not having a lawful driver's license. It was true. I didn't have a legal driver's license. It wasn't my fault. I had gone into the Greek consulate in Oakland several times to do all kinds of business, and I asked them point blank, is my American driver's license good? And they said yes, and they were wrong. It wasn't. I had been stopped at root number of routine traffic stops, give me your license, give me your registration, give me insurance. They never said a word about it. But when we had an accident, and not because of the accident, but because of totally unrelated reasons, when they saw I didn't have an international driver's license. How many have an international driver's license? You know what it is? It's this lousy piece of paper. You take your Alaska driver's license, a picture, and 25 bucks to the auto club, and they give it to you. And all it is, it's a driver's license, but the wording on it is real specific and it conforms to certain international agreements and stuff. If you don't have that, you don't have a driver's license. So I am arrested for not having a lawful driver's license. And I'm at the police station and I've been informed that I'm under arrest and I'm going to see the judge in the morning. Where do I go to see the judge? Mr. Morales, you don't go anywhere, you're staying here. And Joyce is like, I don't believe my husband's under arrest. And Christopher was freaking out, because he was really small, but he was not doing well with it. Sophia was being cool as usual. Um, yeah, but it was, it was rough. It was rough. And so, um, again, to make a long story short, ended up they went home. I stayed. Um, the next morning, I met my two Greek friends, two Greek cops that walked me through the whole experience. Yeah, never left me alone. They took me down. I was fingerprinted. 
They took me to another building. I got my picture taken. Click, click. That experience, yeah. Took me to another office, and this is when I knew it was real. I walked in the office, and it said Interpol across the... I said, you're going to run my name through Interpol because of a driver's license? Yep. Did that. Whole package deal. Uh, ended up in the courtroom at a, sometime after, after noon, right? Um, and it's along this process, one of the lessons, I learned many lessons that day, is that in the Greek legal system, there is no distinction between felony and misdemeanor. So I'm lumped in with everybody, right? And it was a three-day weekend. I got busted the last of the three-day weekend. So when I get to the court, every other case for that three-day weekend was ahead of mine. So I got to sit for at least a good eight hours watching the Greek legal system unfold in front of me and learning about the Greek legal system. Uh, the courtroom looked a lot like an American courtroom. There were all the benches where everybody sits, and there was that rail in the front. And then at the other end of the room was this big, huge bench with three people behind it. And the lady in the front was obviously the judge because she had the gavel which she would pound down about every 20 or 30 minutes, because like everywhere else in Greece, it's kind of chaotic in there. It's really noisy. Greeks do chaos so well. It's a beautiful thing. And she would just, bam, be quiet. And the noise level would come down. And then over 20 minutes, it would come back up. You know? So she was obviously the judge. There was a lady to her left to whom she would talk every few minutes. And this lady would write a couple things down, and that was it. There was a man to her right to whom she spoke constantly. The lady in the center with the gavel and the man to her right are talking constantly. Then, and, here's the, and then it was the thing in the front, the little curvy thing that the, that the accused stands in. They had one of those, yeah. I got to stand there. Um, but then between the bench and where all the, and where all the benches are, we're like, we're like stadium benches or bleachers on the sides, oriented this way. And they were obviously lawyers, because they were dressed like lawyers, you know. And they're sitting here, and they're sitting there, and the entire day they're arguing back and forth. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out what's going on, you know, and I'm trying to remember, I think, how am I going to say in Greek, because I don't speak really hardly any Greek at all, how am I going to say, I went to the consulate in Oakland and they told me, I know I'm guilty, I don't have a license, that's it, right, but it's not my fault, consulate in Oakland, how am I going to say that in Greek, and I'm going over that, so about 6 p.m., my lawyer shows up, never met him before, he was a mutual, we had a mutual friend, and he had grown up with was a guy I knew from ministry, and he had brought his friend in. And my lawyer had kind of a dark sense of humor. That didn't really help, but um, he was trying to help. But uh, as we got to talking to one another, he said, um, he said are, you, are you ready? I said, yeah, I think I got the whole thing figured out, how I'm going to say. I went to the consulate, bad information. He said, oh, no, 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 you're not saying anything. What do you mean? He said, well, this is different than the American legal system. For one thing... In the American legal system, you've already learned felonies, misdemeanors, there's no distinction. Second thing, even though we have that presumption of innocence thing, no one believes it. Because Greeks are so good at working the system, you wouldn't have gotten this far into the system if you weren't a bad guy. So maybe you didn't break this law, but you broke something. And because you're a bad guy, you're going to lie anyway, right? So they're going to ask you your name, and that's it. I'm thinking, I am cooked. Because I'm guilty, I know that. And the, the only person that knows what was said in the Greek consulate is me. Nobody else can help me out here, right? And so, okay, and, and then the lawyer, and I'm not using the names of my lawyer or my friend because I don't have their permission to use their names, that's why. And um, the lawyer said to me, but don't worry, which when a Greek tells you that, doesn't mean anything. 
Uh, I've learned that already. The cop that arrested me told me that. Um, you don't worry. Um, we have something going for us, and that's our friend. And he points to our common friend. Like, well, that's great. He doesn't know anything. Don't worry. He's got it. Okay. So I get all ready, and uh, they call my name, and I step forward into the little thing, and the lady says, Yanis uh, Moropoulos, Yeto Nikolaos, which is John Moropoulos, son of Nicholas, and that's when it hit me. I had drugged my entire family into that courtroom. And the last thing I want to do is embarrass my family, because they're great people. Uh, yes, ma'am. And then she said, very nice, very politely, she says, would you rather do this in English? That would be a good idea. So she said, you may sit down. I sat down. What hope do I have? Oh, I had also discovered the three people at the front. You see, I had thought that the three people at the front were like a three-judge panel, and maybe these are prosecution, prosecuting lawyers, and these are defense lawyers. I asked my lawyer about that. He said, no. The lady in the front, we called her the president. She's the judge. The lady to her left is the recorder. She's only writing down about a tenth of what happens. It's good enough. Um, the guy to her right is the prosecutor. So the prosecutor sits on the same level as the judge, has the judge's ear constantly. He said, well, if he's the prosecutor. Who are these lawyers? Defense lawyers. Who are these lawyers? Defense lawyers. If they're all defense lawyers, why are they arguing back and forth? And he said, because they're Greek. <laughs> That's what we do. Okay, great. Doesn't help me. So I've gotten to the point that I've introduced myself, and I've been told to sit down. And then she asked my lawyer, do you have your special witness? And he said, yes, I do, very confidently. And he pointed to my friend, who came forward like he owned the joint. And they asked him what his name was. He gave them his name. And they said, what do you do? And he said, I own a television station. Because on paper, he did. It was a Christian television station. They needed a Greek to put on the paperwork. They put him on the paperwork. So to the mind of a Greek, you tell them you own a station, television station, what do they hear? You are really, really rich. That was the only time when he said, I own a television station, was the only time the entire day that courtroom was dead silent. And the prosecutor straight in his eye. The judge is getting herself all squared away. And he said, well, sir, uh, what do you have to say? And he lit it up. My friend Yanni's here. He brings his family from America so his children will learn. That. You know how much his children are suffering right now. They're at home crying. They're scared. They're terrified. He brings his children here so they'll learn. You know how hard our language is to learn. You know how much they're suffering. And, they want, and this is how we treat him. This is wrong. And she's not saying a word. She said, and, and he goes to the Greek consulate in Oakland. Now, they're not stupid. They know he wasn't there. They know that everything he says is based on what I have told him, but they don't want to hear it from me. He says, he goes to the Greek consulate. He asked about a driver's license. You know they don't know anything in our consulate. She says, yes, sir, that's very true. Our consulates are very bad. <laughs> and they give him bad information about his driver's license, and that is why he finds himself here. And then she says, well, sir, what should we do about it? And he said, what should we do? We need to get him home to his children first. You get, let him go, and if he needs this paper you want, this international, let him send to the United States, get the paperwork, bring it back here, and we'll be done. And boom, next case. My two freak friends, just my two cops, they disappeared. I was in the parking lot in two minutes. Thoroughly confused. <laughs> what in the world just happened? 
And we're walking out, my, my lawyer and his friend, they're all laughing and having a good time with me, you know, and finally the lawyer says, you got some questions, don't you? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. What happened in there? He said, well, what you had going for you is the fact that in the Greek legal system, which is something you don't have in the U.S. legal system, is you can have one witness that doesn't have to know anything about the case. Nothing. But they have to know you. I said, you mean like a character witness? He said, not exactly. You see, a character witness will testify as to your character. That's irrelevant here. Doesn't matter. What mattered was his character. See, in the Greek legal system, and he said it's been this way for thousands of years. As long as you've had a legal system, it's been there. In the Greek legal system, you can have one friend, one witness, who will come forward, and all that matters is their status, their gravitas, if you will. And whatever their status is, based on the fact they are willing to stand next to you publicly in court, their status transfers to you. Now, there is no way on this planet they're going to bug somebody rich enough to own a television station about a driver's license. That is not going to happen. Hence, the moment he identified himself as owning a television station, really rich guy, that became my status. They could not get me out of that room fast enough. They wanted nothing to do with me being there. And two minutes later, I'm out the door in the parking lot. And then my lawyer said, the name of that witness is Parikletos, the paraclete. Jesus reached into the Greek legal system. Not the only time he did that, by the way. In fact, he's going to do it again in about a verse. Our Lord commonly, the writers of Scripture commonly reached into the secular world to find specific, powerful words. It's true of baptism. It's true of the word we use for the church. Reached into the secular world and grabbed very powerful words and brought them into our, into our biblical understanding. Made those words spiritual. The idea of that special Greek witness that would stand next to you and transfer his status to you, Jesus says that is what the Holy Spirit will be to you. He will identify with you in such a way that his status... How many of you heard that there's going to become a day that every one of us is going to stand before the Lord and the Lord's going to ask us something, right? What did you do with my son? Why should I let you into heaven? All kinds of variations on that, right? I've heard that too. You know, I am not at all sure that when that day comes, I'll get to say a word. The Lord may say, that you, John? Yep, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you have to say? He's one of yours? Good. Next case. Because he identifies with us. The paraklitos. You and I have someone who will stand beside us and say, Yanis is my friend. My status is his count, is his status. And all that will count is his status, not mine. In that day, what I have said, what I have done, what I have or have not accomplished will not matter. It'll be his status that will matter. We have this is what it means for us. We have a good friend and he carries a lot of weight. He is one called alongside of us. And again, if you, don't, if you don't think that Jesus would use a legal word 
or draw a word from the legal system. You know, look at the next verse. Look at the verse, verse 9. He says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world. He's also a prosecutor. A friend is also a prosecutor. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's the charge. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. He will be present to make that allegation. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. There will be no other court, no one else to answer to but this court. That's what he means. to. It's, it's a mistake to think the Holy Spirit only ministers to the church. No. He ministers to the lost. I mean, how else did we go from being lost to being saved? Right? You know, we often say, again, we often heard it said that there's this God-shaped void in the human heart that that being empty draws us to the Lord. And there's a sufficient amount of truth in that. But it also loses track of a greater truth. It's not simply the longing for something shaped in like shaped in the, in the shape of God or a vacuum in the shape of God in my heart that drew me. See, to argue that leaves the Holy Spirit totally out of the picture. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and causes us to turn our heart towards Christ. It is the Spirit that calls us. So He convicts the world, and we were once in that righteousness, judgment, truth. And he ministers to us. Verses 12 to 14 talks about the way he teaches us, guides us, illuminates truth in our lives. He is active every day in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And all of that is the fulfillment of a promise he had just made back in John chapter 14. And before we read that promise, it's so important to remember that what we have said about the Holy Spirit up to this point. Up to this point, the Holy Spirit's presence was external rather than internal. It was functional rather than personal. It was occasional rather than ongoing. That was the pattern in the Old Testament. We've already seen that, right? Now you may ask the question, well, why, why the radical change? Why being external becomes internal? From being functional becomes relational. From being occasional becomes permanent. Why that drastic change? Well, Jesus said this just a couple chapters before. John 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, same word, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. God, give us the wisdom to know how radical this change is. And the change is predicated on one thing. The death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. You see, until that happened, the means by which the Holy Spirit ministered, that pattern we see in the Old Testament of eternality, functionality, only being occasional, that's as good as it could be. It could not change until Jesus came from the grave, ascended to the Father, and said, Father, now it's time to send him. I will pray the Father, and he will send him. God, give us the wisdom to perceive how radical this change is. The world doesn't see him or know him. He said, but you know him because he abides with you. That little word, 
meno, one of the oldest words in the language, a word in use for well over 3,000 years, and its meaning has never changed. You can read the writing of Homer. You see the word meno. It means the exact same thing it means today. And what does it mean? It means to dwell with. It's the simplest word. It actually goes back before Greek. It means to dwell with, to live with. This is why I say the best definition of a Christian is someone the Holy Spirit lives inside of. Because Paul tells the Roman church, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you're not, you're not his. Now, that's not, we're not talking about manifestations yet. We're not talking about any of that yet. We're just talking about the abiding presence of the Spirit of God within us. That is the radical change that takes place when Jesus returns to the Father. This is what makes the Christian faith so distinct. Yes, we say it's grounded in truth, but it's more than that. It's a truth that is alive and in us, guiding us and teaching us every day. It is His presence in us that makes us holy. We're called saints throughout the book. Well, if you know me, you know that's not because of anything about me. That is only because the Holy One lives inside of me. right? And that knowledge should impact us every day. We can and should walk every day with the constant awareness that God lives in us in the person of His Spirit. There is never a moment, there is never a moment, even in the moment of our darkest sin, there is never a moment He is not immediately present in our lives. And it is so complete. It is so complete. I'll close with this. When I had to go back to court, I got my international driver's license in the mail. It took longer than it was supposed to, but I got it. I went back to the court with my international driver's license, and um, when I handed it, to, same, same, same lady, same judge, uh, she said, you know, we're done here, fine. Right. I said, I have to ask you a question, though, ma'am. I said, sometimes in the United States, when you fill out applications or paperwork, they ask you the question, have you ever been arrested for anything? And what do I say? And she said, no, say no. Okay, I know in my mind, you know, the way Greeks tell stories, sometimes you tell it tells best. Um, I, I don't mean to be, be persistent, ma'am. I don't want to make you mad, but you're telling me I've never been arrested? She said, Yanis, none of it ever happened. Just as though we had never sinned. Father, I thank you for your word because it speaks to us, Lord, with such clarity. Father, we're so occupied sometimes in doing this thing right. We want to do the Christian thing right and we get all bound up in what we try to do instead of realizing that it's all about you doing it in and through us you doing it in and through us. And Father, we look at the work of our Savior on the cross. We look at the power that drew him out of the grave. Brought him to walk among those he loved, Father. And we go, yeah, that was all God. And then we get in this thing that going forward from there, it's somehow us again. But Lord, we know your word is really clear that you, in the person of your spirit, live and dwell with us every day. We are new creatures, that's true, Lord, because of what you have done and because of what you're doing in our lives every day. And I pray, Father, as we go through this week,
Father, that will not only uh, motivate us to holy living, but it will also be the strength and the source from which we live holy, productive lives, drawing other people to you. That is our goal. And we're so glad, Lord, that you're privileged just to be in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord this morning.